So Andrew Wiggins doesn't want to take the vaccine. It means he might have to sit out home games in San Francisco because they've got a strict vaccine mandate in that city. But when the team goes on the road, he would be allowed to play in Toronto. Does this make any sense at all? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist for the Toronto Sun, who wrote a great column on this. Brian, thanks for coming on today. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. It is a bit strange, isn't it, that um, you know we heard the entire election campaign how Justin Trudeau was going to protect us all from the unvaccinated. And if he wasn't reelected, we were all going to be in danger from the unvaccinated. He'd stop anybody from flying or getting on a train without their shots. But there's an exemption for elite pro athletes. And it's not just in the NBA. It's uh, it's in the NHL. It's Major League Baseball as well. Yeah, right. Okay, so the the Blue Jays right now are in a pennant, pennant race. And so if you have unvaccinated baseball players come to Toronto to play against the Blue Jays, same deal, right? They'll be allowed into the country. They'll be allowed to play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and look, I've, I've, I actually, I'm fine with it because I keep going to the Jays games. I'm going tonight and hoping for, <laughs> I'm hoping for a game as exciting as last night and I'm not near the players. And uh, yeah, so does it really matter? To me, it matters for the hypocrisy yeah. of yeah. the federal policy where they say, you know, I mean, Trudeau was adamant. And even Tuesday when he held his first news conference since the election said he's going to make sure to move fast so that nobody can be on a plane without their shots. Unless, again, they, you know, they play for the Canucks or in the case of uh, one of the players who's not vaccinated, Tyler Bertuzzi from Sudbury, Ontario, plays for the uh, Detroit Red Wings. You know, he can fly in and out of the country. Of course, he's Canadian, so he always could. Although I've heard that the NHL, I think, had put its foot down and said if you're unvaccinated, you would not be allowed to travel into Canada. I think that was a decision of the NHL. Maybe I got that wrong. I think that... my understanding is that was prior to the uh, the decision to grant the uh, this um, exemption, uh, this national interest exemption. Right. OK, um, so let's talk about that national interest exemption, Brian. Like, how does this work? How is how are Toronto Raptors games or Toronto Blue Jays games? Are Why is that declared in the national interest to allow these players into Canada? Because otherwise, the um, you know, other than NHL hockey, if you take away the ability of teams to come in and out, well, the Raptors or the Jays would just have to go play somewhere in the States, as they did before. Um, so I guess that is the national interest exemption. Um, <laughs> I, I, again, I, I don't have an issue with this. Most of the players are vaccinated. My yeah. issue is with the hypocrisy surrounding the stances that the uh, – that the PM and, and, and his party have taken. Yeah, so, mean, so let me see if I get this straight. So if you want to go to a Toronto Raptors game, you must be vaccinated to get into the arena, right? Yeah. But to play in the game, you don't have to be vaccinated. So you must be vaccinated to watch the game. Well, you don't have to be vaccinated to play in the game. You correct? either have to show uh, proof of vaccine or a negative COVID test. Unless that has changed just recently, they do include a negative test as acceptable. And it's the same. I've gone to uh, Jays games since they brought in their proof of vaccination requirement on September 13th. I'll tell you, it is a bit of a mess in terms of being able to um, 
get in and out of the, the stadium. It does slow things down. And I haven't been since they increased the capacity to 30,000 at the Rogers Centre. So I'll see what it's like there tonight. But, yeah, the, the requirements are stricter uh, yeah. for playing. And, and that's the same in, in many spots. I mean, San Francisco is the outlier. Uh, San Francisco has brought in that if you're unvaccinated, you're not allowed in any large indoor uh, setting. And that's why Andrew Wiggins, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, wouldn't be allowed to play in home games. He's not allowed in the building. Yeah, right. Oh, I, I believe it's a, a similar situation for in New York, right? So, I mean, you've got the Brooklyn Nets and their star player, Kyrie Irving, who says he, you know, there's, he's reported he doesn't want to take the vaccine either. And so this is a real headache for that team as well, where they've got some strict vaccine mandates in New York City. So would it be the same deal for him? Not allowed to play in like his home games? Yeah, and then could go to another jurisdiction be it toronto or elsewhere and, and then he is allowed uh, to play. be able to play yeah, yeah right right okay so he's making the argument that these professional athletes should get the vaccine to protect themselves to protect their teammates and if they don't then they should be told you can't play sit your butt down you can't play you can't go on the court you can't go on the ice or the field what do you think about that like do you think athletes should be required to get the vaccine, or do you think they should still be allowed to play if they don't get it? Well, I'm not a big fan of uh, telling somebody what you have to do, but employers are able to tell you. And I I say this as someone fully vaccinated who's written many columns, made many comments saying you should go get your vaccine. I don't like the idea of the state or your employer telling you what to do, unless it's really necessary. Like, You know, if you're working in an operating room, you should probably be vaccinated before you're cutting people open. Uh, If you're working in care settings, you should be vaccinated. Professional athlete, mm, you know, there was one NBA player, and I was just looking to find, uh, see if I could find the video. He's not somebody I'm familiar with, not a team I follow. Uh, But he was describing why he hadn't been vaccinated, and his simple reason was that he, uh, he was someone who had COVID before, So he felt, you know, and many doctors will say, yes, there are natural antibodies. And also that given his uh, age and peak health, that he was at very low risk. All of that's absolutely factual. Andrew Wiggins turned around and saying he wants a religious exemption. No, that I I don't. And they didn't give it to him. They didn't give it to him. He asked for a a religious exemption. They turned him down. I don't know which religion would have a a problem with vaccination. Okay, and I'm not not sure which religion he's a member of, but maybe we'll find out more about it in the days ahead. Brian, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. We talked in the previous segment about that national interest exemption that Canada has given to professional athletes to enter the country. So if you're a pro baseball player, basketball player, no problem. You're, you're whisked across the border into Canada, even if you are not vaccinated. Now, it is a different story for everybody else. Now, my next guest had a lot of trouble crossing the border back into Canada, and he's here to share his story now. Michael Douay he lives in Surrey. Hi, Michael. Hey, Michael, can you hear me? can you hear me okay? Yes, did you can you hear me? Yes, I can. Michael, thank oh, okay. you very, thank you very much for coming on. Uh hey Michael, I know that you live in Surrey and that you recently traveled to uh Washington state and and I know your troubles started when you when you came home. Let's let's start like when did you travel down to Washington state? 
We went down on the 31st. We, we uh, took a flight out of uh, Boundary Bay, a uh, 15-minute flight to Bellingham. <laughs> uh, we had been tested at Ultima Medical Services at YVR uh, uh, on the 29th, and uh, we had to have that, uh, and that test was uh, given to us uh, within an hour. We had the results, negative results. Uh, so we, we boarded the plane on the 31st. But prior to that, uh, we were concerned about not having uh, a, an electronic device uh, in order to come back to Canada and, and look get the uh, uh, Arrive Canada app. Right. We don't understand all of that things. We're not tech savvy. Uh, so we went to the White Rock Health Unit, and uh, they printed off our immunization results, uh, showing that we both had the Pfizer vaccine, both shots, and uh, they stamped it with, with their stamp, White Rock Health Unit, and uh, said that should suffice. So... Uh, we booked our flight, got our test done, landed in Bellingham Airport 15 minutes after takeoff, 5.30 in the afternoon, went into customs at the Bellingham Airport. They looked at the documents, our, our, our passports, our regular passports, and uh, they said, everything looks good. Welcome to the USA. Okay. So three weeks later, uh, after we'd uh, worked on our place down there, we hadn't been down for years, so there was a lot of things to be taken care of to get yeah, it winterized. Yeah, so you, when you say we, you're talking you, you and your wife went down, My right? wife and I, yes, sir. Yeah, and you guys own, like, some property down there or something? Yes, Right, yes. okay, okay. So and, you were down uh, it, take... it, it, We hadn't been down for a year, and it needed to be winterized, and uh, we found a lot of problems. That we, were, we actually extended the trip from two weeks to three because uh, we just couldn't get it all done in time. Right. But anyway... Um, what we did uh, prior to going home, uh, yeah. we had to uh, online, my daughter set it up to get to uh, have Northwest Laboratories, which is at Bellingham Airport. It's a drive through testing station. Yeah. Uh, she set up the appointment for us, and uh, that was done on the 19th of September. And uh, the, that was on, on 20th. They uh, emailed her the results, the negative results. And she, in turn, emailed them to our neighbor in Birch Bay Village, and they copied it for us, so we were set to go. So on the uh, 21st, we were taking a uh, U-Haul van uh, home, truck home, because that's the most reasonable way to get home in a, in a vehicle, because uh, cars were in excess of $1,000 for the week. Wow. Uh, but the U-Haul, we saved $400 by using a U-Haul truck, so we loaded it and headed for the border. We were there... Uh, 48 hours uh, after we'd been tested by Northwest Laboratories. So we had all the paperwork with us. So let, let, me, let me just interrupt you there, because yes. the, the requirement to, to cross the border is you must be, to, to go back into Canada, you must be fully vaccinated, right? So you and your wife are both fully vaccinated, two shots of the vaccine, correct? Right. That's right. Right, and you also have to show a negative, a recent negative COVID test. Right. And so you followed all the rules, and you had the paperwork all printed out, right? All printed out. Okay, yes. okay, okay. So c carry on. What happened Okay, then? we presented that to the border guard, yeah. who wasn't the most friendly person. Oh. <laughs> you get that occasionally. Uh, but anyway, he, he went over, and then they gave us, a, uh, gave us our documents back, our passports, and a green slip to go, go park over by the entrance to the, uh, the offices and go in and see the officers in uh -oh. there. Uh-oh, uh-oh. No, but what I thought they were doing was they were going to open the back of the truck to inspect what we had in there. Right. But that wasn't the case. Uh, so there's about, I don't know, eight border people all sitting behind their computers, and uh, we walk up to one and show them our paperwork and give him the green slip we'd been sent in with. And uh, they said, uh, you know, you have to use the uh, Arrive Canada app. I said, yes, but we don't have iPhones. 
we don't have the electronic devices and we are not tech savvy. So we've had this done. I showed him the White Rock Health Unit printout. Yeah. And I showed him the test from Northwest Laboratories yeah. in uh, Bellingham Airport. Nope, I'm sorry. You, uh, you'll have to uh, go over to that tent. It's a testing tent they have set up uh, at the truck crossing. And uh, you'll have to be tested there, and you'll have to uh, quarantine for two weeks. Oh. And I argued with him. Uh, you don't like to argue with them down there because they get you into a lot of trouble. But yeah. I just said, look, I, what, do you, what do you need here? This is Everything is there. My passport made of paper. What, everything. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we go into have to they give you these uh, life lab uh, test kits. There's two of them, one for home use and the other one that you're going to be tested on right there in the tent. Now those people, we showed them the documents. I believe they're red cross that are doing this, but they said, yes, we see that you've done everything right, but we can't do anything about it. Right. So the problem is, so, so you followed the rules by to the letter. You had everything done properly, but the only problem was you didn't have a cell phone. Like you didn't have a smartphone with his app on it to show them. That's Correct. right. Yeah. Right. So, and we don't know how to do all these things, Mike. We just don't. We, we choose, you know, we do have a computer at home, but it's just, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just, we're not into really getting into how to use everything. And it's, uh, uh, I haven't touched the computer in seven years <laughs> since right. I retired. But uh, anyway, I, we had to have our tests done there. And, and, and they don't actually test you at this little place. You have to do everything. You open the one kit, and you have to take the swab out, put it in your mouth, and he counts while you swab the left side, the right side of your mouth. Yeah. Then you take it out, and he says, now put it up your nose. Ugh. And I thought that was kind of disgusting, but that's the way they do that test. And he counts so many swirls in your, each nostril, and then you have to put it into a test tube. You do, they don't touch anything. You uh-huh. do everything. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, we just told them straight that uh, there's a, for the, the kit that we had, there's eight days later, they give you the results. And then you're supposed to quarantine, and then eight days later, you do the results. Then you go online, and you have this home kit that we're, we have here yeah. from Life Labs. That you're, you're supposed to go online and do this. I said, we're not doing it. We've done nothing wrong. We don't need to quarantine, and I won't. And we were told that there could be a $6,000 fine if Ooh. you don't do this and you don't do that. Well, when, when, you say, when you say you have to quarantine, you mean they would let you back into Canada, but you'd have to quarantine on our side of the border? Or? That's right. I'd have no, to I go. See. After we took yeah. the test there, yeah. we had, we, then we, I guess they, do, they, they sign off on the little green slip that the border guards gave us. Then you get, we got in our truck. We came around to the exit. There's a border guard standing there. He takes a, that green slip, says, have a nice day, and away we go. Now we're home. And I, we took the thing back to Langley. After okay. So, but so I didn't quarantine. You- Okay, so they let you into Canada, but they said you have to quarantine on the Canadian side of the border, but you did not quarantine because because you didn't see any point of it because you, you no. already knew you'd followed all the rules and you're, you're negative. Well, that's and, right, Mike. Yeah. And I, I, you know, we followed from the day one of COVID. My yeah. wife and I have followed the recommendations that are put out by the health experts. We've gone right to the right to the T. So could they, could they technically, could someone now come and technically hand you a ticket for $6,000? I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, but I'm... Huh. You know, we'll go from, uh, I've got the proof that we were vaccinated and that we had had the test coming into Canada. And if they can't read that, and yeah. or they could have phoned White Rock Health. I mean, all these border guards are Canadians and they live in the area. They know where White Rock is. They could have just phoned if they wanted clarification. I mean, yeah. 
it's it's uh it's pretty sad and it was very upsetting uh, it was uh we lost a lot of sleep over when we got home it's uh it's just they put you through the mill and when you haven't done anything wrong when you followed right. the rules it's right. very upsetting and right. i just that's when I, I i i tried phoning uh fraser health all these different places and i kept getting put off getting put off and finally the last person i finally talked to said here's the number for border services and i thought well that's the end of it so that's when i went to and talked to the editor at peace arch news and uh and here we are okay so so michael bottom line is you feel that for someone like how old are you by the way i will be 77 uh on the 8th of october and my awesome. wife isn't <laughs> okay well that that is a, that's an awesome age um Basically, I guess for a guy like yourself and your wife, you don't use a cell phone. Like you said, you're not tech savvy, whatever. You, mm-hmm. There should be accommodation made for someone like to show a, a reasonable paper, printed paper copy of the, the documents that you need. Is that, is that what you that's would what argue? I think. Yeah. yeah, that's the way it should be. I, I yeah. just don't see everything having to be on elect, uh, you know, electronic devices these days. I mean, how did we ever get by when it was just paper? Hard right. copy. <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay, Michael, just... thank you very much for sharing the story. Um, that does sound like it was a, a real major hassle you and your wife went through. I sure hope that nobody shows up at your door and says you owe us $6,000. <laughs> well, I'll not... tell you what, Michael, I'll give you a call if they do. <laughs> yeah, please, please do. Um, please do that if you don't mind. I would like to know, if, certainly if that happens. I certainly hope it doesn't. Michael, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the border rules to travel back and forth between Canada and the United States. Heard my conversation there with Michael Douay. He is a resident of Surrey and the troubles that he had uh, returning to British Columbia from Washington State. Uh, they didn't want to accept his proof of vaccination and his negative COVID uh, proof of vaccination at the border. Why? Because he doesn't have a smartphone. He did not have that Arrive Can app. Uh, He was told to, he would have to uh, isolate back in Canada. He says he didn't do that. He and his wife are fully vaccinated and tested negative for COVID, so he didn't do it. I hope he doesn't get any trouble for that. Let's check in with Ryan Neely now. He's an immigration lawyer and a partner at McRae Immigration Law. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Have you heard of other people with with these problems if they don't have a cell phone? Let's say they don't have a smartphone, they don't have the ArriveCan app. Is that a problem for travelers? Uh, I mean, yeah, so the live can filing is obviously required under the quarantine act, um, and uh, there are two versions. I'm having a lot of, hey, Ryan, I'm having, I'm having a lot of trouble hearing you. I don't know if you can, like, move to a window or something to see if we can get a, a better cell connection there. How, how about this? Yeah, go ahead. Give it another try. Go ahead. Okay, so the Arrive Can app um, is required under the quarantine act, and filing of, uh, of any traveler is required. Uh, there's two versions of it available. Um, they are available through the app, obviously, but there is a web-based version as well. Yeah. Okay. So I've been still having some difficulty uh, hearing you with the bad connection we got, Ryan. But let let me ask you this: it, it, He described a situation where the border officials did not want to accept his printed documents. So he had proof of vaccination. He had a negative COVID test. Not on his smartphone app, though. It was all just printed out, printed documents. Was Is your understanding of the rules of the border, as he described it, that's not acceptable? Like, if you show up with a paper document, they're not going to accept it. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so again, for someone who doesn't have the app or a smartphone, the, uh, the, the process is for them to upload that information through the web-based uh, version of the, of the program and then printing off the receipt of that uh, filing uh, and then also arriving with paper versions of the vaccination certificates and things like that. Simply showing up with the, with the paper version of the vaccination certificates alone is viewed by uh, PHAC and CSA as not meeting the requirements of having uploaded your information through the right. Right. So he was told in this case, Michael Douay was told because he didn't he showed paper, a paper proof and they didn't accept it. He was told that he would have to quarantine on the Canadian side of the border. And if he didn't do that, he could face a fine of six thousand bucks. He says he did not do it because he didn't see the point. He was vaccinated. He had tested negative. He knows he had followed all the rules. So he simply did not do the follow the quarantine order. Could he get in trouble for that? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, the Quarantine Act, unfortunately for him, um, does provide for some fairly specific remedies by the government. Uh, I want to say that the the maximum is uh, $7,500 a a day or $5,000 a day uh, per per infraction, up to a total of $750,000. And for sort of egregious offenses, um, there is the ability to um, charge criminally for fraud as well. For individuals who, for instance... Um, you know, upload falsified certificates and things like that. Not that I'm making any, um, you know, statement that he would have done so. No, I mean, I totally believe his story and uh, the way he told it today. I thought he was, I yeah. thought he was totally convincing that is, things happened exactly the way he described them. But I wonder if, you know, is he? Do you think he could be in some jeopardy? Like, if he actually did get charged with not doing the quarantine, you know, would he have a good, a reasonable? explanation if he said look i did follow all the rules i just didn't have this app on my phone yeah i mean that's I, you know it's a fair point and and obviously yeah. you commiserate with an individual like this um who's really done nothing wrong other than to follow some you know fairly specific rules um but the reality is that the the act does permit um you know sort of financial penalties for those who don't follow the the specified uh, sort of steps and, you know, he didn't have a smartphone, and that's, that's fine. Um, but my understanding of what you're describing is that he failed to then upload the required information through the web-based. Um, right, that's right. So, so certainly he's, he, there is some, there is, you know, he's got some liability um, if he decides uh, not to uh, comply with an order of an officer under the Quarantine Act. Okay, well, we're going to follow it. Hopefully nothing uh, bad happens to him. Ryan, thanks for coming on with your analysis. Appreciate it. Vancouver drivers, hold on to your wallets here. Brand new City Hall report just out recommends that annual parking permit to park on residential side streets. If you drive a new gas-guzzling truck, SUV, or sports car, oh, you're public enemy number one here. They're coming to get you. A $1,000 parking surcharge on those new vehicles. It's all part of uh, the climate change emergency, of course. This is Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan. And this is the Climate Emergency Parking Program. Just been rolled out this week. All right. Could this be the start of even more fees to come? Remember that mobility pricing plan that was also on the books Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having us. 
Okay, so let's talk about this parking permit plan now. This was described in a report released at City Council yesterday, and you're talking like it's only like 50 bucks a year or something, though, right? So, I mean, it's not like it's a lot. No, and that's to start. And this is why we wanted to put a flag on it now uh, before it really gets rolling and gets entrenched. So a few months back, you probably remember, your listeners probably remember, where they put it out for consultation. They wanted to hear from people. What would you think about such a parking fee? And so a lot of people gave their input. So did the CTF. Um, Most people uh, talked about the environment. They talked about the hardship of the extra cost, all that stuff. Our issue here is that if they start charging you uh, megabucks if you have, as you said, a gas-guzzling brand-new vehicle for parking on the street, you've opened the door. You've set it up so that now the city, all they need to do is move the goalposts in the future. So that means, say, your older vehicle, your less expensive vehicle, the one that your renter in your basement suite is using to park on the street so they can go to their night shift work, that one will start getting dinged. And so that's more of our concern. Uh, If you can afford a massive luxury vehicle that's totally brand new, you can probably afford a parking fee, but this is the slippery slope. Once they get started on this, there is no stopping them. And we use the provincial carbon tax as an example. When it started Mm. in 2008, they told us it was going to be revenue neutral, it would reduce emissions, that the money was going to go into clean technology. Like, none of that is true today. It's just a massive cash grab, and emissions are still going up. Right, it goes into general revenue, the the carbon tax. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here with this plan. Let me just ask you, first of all, about the the parking program. So... $45 a year to park on the street outside your home effectively. So this would apply to residential side streets. Now, like I I said, it doesn't sound like it's a lot. And it really is not a lot, I guess, 45 bucks a year, but it could go up later. But this applies to all vehicles, right? So even if you've got an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle, you'd still have to pay this fee, correct? As far as our understanding is, it doesn't sound like there is a car vote for electric vehicles. And one of the reasons for our understanding being that way is that when they first proposed this study, part of the study included, say you're a new condo developer or a housing builder and you build housing, they actually recommended in the report to eliminate underground parking lots. Period. It doesn't even matter yeah. if it was for driving an electric vehicle. So it's really more of a, a war on the car. Here. Well, right. Yeah. yeah, right. Car- cars are the enemy. Like, it doesn't matter if they're electric or, or not. Like, they're clogging up the roads and con- congestion is a bad thing. So, yeah, they want to whack everybody with this parking fee, whether it's a, a, a an emission-free vehicle or not. Then you've got this pollution surcharge. Now, this would apply to uh, trucks, SUVs luxury sports vehicles that are gas powered so if you got an electric or a hybrid you would not have to pay this it's only for gas powered vehicles a thousand bucks a year yeah now that's getting into some serious coin that could go up again later the thing i find weird about it is it would only apply to new vehicles like brand new vehicles though so i guess they're trying to do make this what an incentive for you to buy an electric vehicle or a hybrid, I guess. Exactly. The thinking yeah. is is that if they ding you with this, that your next choice of vehicle will more likely be an electric vehicle or one that doesn't use, you know, gasoline or diesel in order for you to park on the street. And again, you know, if you can afford, you know, a brand new Ford F-150 in the year 2022 or 2023, whenever this would kick in, you know, that's, that's the thin edge of the wedge. Uh, our concern is that they would remove the exemption for older vehicles. They would remove yeah. the exemption for, for more affordable cars. And then you're really going to start nuking people who can really not afford it. Uh, Vancouver's already one of the most unaffordable places to live, like on planet Earth. 
And so this is our concern is that if you start now and start letting them charge people now, uh, it's just a matter of time before they move down the slide. Well, yeah, because and I think they would almost certainly expand this to older vehicles because the way they've set it up here doesn't even make any kind of rational sense. Like if the idea is to fight climate change and we want to clamp down on polluting vehicles, I mean, it's older gas powered vehicles are more polluting than, than anything, really than some of these newer, the ones with the newer technology. Yes. So they'd want to go after these older gas-powered vehicles at some point down the road. So I, I think maybe they're just sort of softening people up for that to come later. I think so, too. And yeah. I think uh, we've got two competing interests even on that side of things. So within that side of things at City Hall, what I'm sensing is there's a camp that's really you know anti-car uh, and wants to clamp down on vehicles no matter what. And there's an element of that camp, though, that is saying, hey, we have to make sure that we're not punishing lower income people. And so we need to have a car vote for those older cars, the used trucks, the folks who are parking on the street. We can't be punishing them because they've got an older vehicle because that's all they can afford. And that's, you know, a noble point. But I'm worried that's going to get drowned out real fast. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it would down the road. Speaking to Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about the Climate Emergency Parking Program unveiled yesterday by the City of Vancouver. The other one that's still kind of out there, Chris, is uh, mobility pricing. And this is one that had been proposed not just for Vancouver, but for the entire lower main, like, like Metro Vancouver, where they could conceivably start to charge you to drive if you cross municipal boundaries or you or you drive into downtown vancouver uh they could they could put uh, charge you with a transponder on your car charge you by the mile i mean it, there's a lot of different ways they can structure this thing what is the status of that right now they are studying it uh we are paying i think 1.7 million dollars or so uh, for the city of vancouver to outsource that study for somebody to conduct the study And I need to really raise this flag here for anybody who travels by vehicle anywhere in the Lower Mainland. Uh, This is something that bureaucrats and folks at TransLink, paid big bucks, have been pushing now for years. And when the first study about this came out, it was called mobility pricing. You're right. And we paid more than two million bucks. You might remember Joy McPhail was heading up the study. That study, Mike, had it so that round trip, you'd be paying up to 13 bucks a pop to cross things like the Patello, the, the Port Man, major bridges into downtown. You do that over the course of a year, that's $3,000 per vehicle oh, oh. just across. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's yeah. a, a clear idea of what kind of money they're thinking of. Now, the current proposal, the one they're studying now, is to put up what I would call a virtual toll wall around the yeah. downtown core of Vancouver that runs from Clark all the way over to Burrard, and it stops going south at City Hall and stops going north, obviously, at the ocean. And so you'd have to cross through there. How much they ding you every time they go through, we don't know yet. If they'd put a transponder into your car to click everywhere you're going, again, that's a huge civil liberties concern there, too. Don't know how much it would cost. Uh, will they have plate reading cameras? Yeah. Will they have facial recognition reading cameras to see if it's the driver or the owner of the oh, car? Oh, no, they're not going to do that. Facial recognition? No. Well, that's the thing, though, is you can say, hey, I, this wasn't my fee, right? Or yeah. But it's your license plate. Well, how do you prove that you weren't well, the one driving? Like, thing, I could easily see that happening. I was in the, on the talks for the mobility pricing one, and hmm. they just didn't even bat an eye about tracking devices in your car that, right. are, that are billing you a fee every centimeter you go. They didn't even blink at it. 
Okay, the supporters of, of this type of mobility pricing system will point to other jurisdictions around the world and say, look, other big cities are doing it, like notably London, where they've got like a congestion fee to drive into downtown London. And they say it's been effective there in reducing congestion and emissions. So why shouldn't we do it here? What do you think of that argument? It's interesting that they bring that up because every person that's in favor of it using that argument just says it in kind of a breezy, cosmopolitan sort of way. You know, they're doing this in London, England. Okay, number one, <laughs> we have a fraction, a fraction of the population in Vancouver, in the city of Vancouver, compared to the city of London. Number two, they never mention how much it costs. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a brand new spanking car in London, it costs you something like 55 bucks a day Canadian. Whoa to get into the downtown core of London. They leave those two things out. They just mention how nice it is in euphemisms, but they don't mention the cost, and they don't mention the comparison. And third, London has the oldest mass transit system on on the planet. They have got the underground. They've got the tube. They've got buses. They've got streetcars. They've got everything. We don't have that infrastructure here in Vancouver. Um, public transit infrastructure, and I still sit gobsmacked that there was no foresight to, bu- to build park and rides at the end of some of the major streets in the North Valley, 232nd, you know, 176, et cetera, et cetera, and do a SkyTrain down the middle of that green space between the highway when they built the Newport Man Bridge. It's just like you can tax the living daylights out of us, but you got to give us something for that. It's like yeah. if you look at like BART in San Francisco, or I mean, there were so many examples of growth and the ability for us to have transit. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I just shake my head. Anyway. Yeah, thank, um, thank you, Mitch. Thank you. I think you raise a good point. Chris, you touched on this earlier that, okay, if you're going to wall up drivers and say, we, we want you to stop driving, well, give them a tran- an effective transit option, which we, we still don't have a fully developed transit system for this region. No, exactly. And yeah. it costs just, you know, your eye teeth in order to build any of it. So there's got to be, they got to go back to the drawing board here. They have to rethink this. They have to figure out how to make this cost effective for taxpayers to actually build functional, useful mass transit and not just nuke people for the sin of driving. It's just not yeah. fair. David in Surrey. Hi, David. Well, you know, it, it, I, they win. I give up. I throw <laughs> up the towel. I'm not coming into Vancouver. They did it with Stanley Park, and we don't drive in because I'm unfortunate enough to have to live, like, not in the city. I have mm-hmm. to drive in there. Like the previous driver said, I have no other choice but to get in there. So I don't go to hockey games. I don't go to the park. I don't go to the I don't. We don't come into the city anymore. I don't go to restaurants there. I look around. I'll go out to Langley. I'll go out to Abbotsford and try a new restaurant. They win. They win. They, okay. they punch <laughs> me out of the city. Okay, David, thank you for that. Well... This is why some of the local business advocacy organizations in Metro Vancouver, Chris, were very worried about this talk about this mobility pricing. If you're going to start start walloping people with these virtual paywalls or t- invisible toll systems all around the region, man, oh, man. I mean, we got an economy here that's in kind of recovery and you're going to start hammering people to drive into Vancouver? You know, a lot of businesses don't want to see that. Well, he described it perfectly. He's in yeah. Surrey, and then when right. he hears these kinds of fees, it's basically like a kind, like hanging a closed-for-business sign there, and that's the last thing we need right now. It's, it's really mind-boggling. I'll put it this way. We haven't always functioned this way. A lot of people may not realize that 100 years ago, at the turn of the last century, we had an electric trolley train system that came all the way down to Harrison Hot Springs. From New Westminster. Mm. It was run on electricity. Like, (laughs) we've done this before, uh, but right now our current thinking and leadership is just out to lunch. Let's go to Dan on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dan. Oh, 
Well, hi, guys. Um, I guess the other part of that report is they are estimating that two-thirds of the of any traffic in the city of Vancouver by 2030 is going to be by either bike, walking, or public transit. And I find that wildly optimistic that they're basing this on this. And the other thing is that... Uh, what is it now? Yeah, I mean, if they want it to be two-thirds, what is it now? Do we know? I think it's around 8%. It's very eight. low. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's. Go ahead. Yeah, it's going to change to seventy-five percent in the next uh, nine years. So hmm. I think the the passport where you won't be able to move out of your neighborhood and find everything in your neighborhood will come soon. Okay, Dan, thank you for the call. Chris and Langley on the line. Hi. Hey guys, uh, you know climate change for first off is a major issue. We just came out of the the worst fire season uh, in in recent history. Uh, in recent times, uh, you know, so it needs to be addressed. We need to uh, uh, look at that. And then the other thing is, why not take that uh, policy and take it at one step further and actually take, say, $3,000 for new gas vehicles and put 100% of that money earmarked towards incentives to buy electric cars or to uh, refurbish buildings instead of just putting it into general revenue as carbon taxes, then it just becomes a tax. But if you actually use it to to create a solution or, or, or for the solution, then I'm all for it. Okay, thank you very much for the call, and thank you for raising the wildfire issue. And he's right, Chris. I mean, we've just gone through a devastating wildfire season, and climate change is real. And I know you're not a – I know you know it's real, too, and mm-hmm. it's, it's caused by human activity. So we got to do something, right? Yeah, we do, but yeah. we have to work on the big end of the arithmetic problem here. Looking at our population compared to India's, uh, we're, we're not affecting any change, even if we stopped everything. Whereas if we actually start selling clean-burning natural gas to places like India, a democracy which is asking for such a natural resource, we would have a dramatic impact on global emissions and global climate change. All right, welcome back to the show. Today is Canada's very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, as you've been hearing on your news. It's a day to reflect and to understand the experience of Indigenous people in our country, especially the residential school system. And it's such an important day, uh, the first one we've had in Canada, and I'm honoured to welcome back my next guest, Rye Moran. Rye is a founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. He's a member of the Red River Métis. He did incredibly important work with Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I'm uh, pleased to welcome him back to the show. Rye, thanks for coming on once again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so here we are on the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And I, I imagine it's, this is going to mean different things to different people. What, well, let's start with your thoughts on it first. What what does this day mean for you? Well, what it means for me, uh, what I carry in my heart is my thoughts immediately go out to all of the residential school survivors out there and the intergenerational survivors, really. Yeah. Um, survivors have waited so long for this country to recognize the full extent of the harms inflicted upon them in the residential schools. Uh, they fought so long for for justice, for human rights, uh, for equality, for fairness, uh, for for recognition, and I, I'm really thinking about them today because a day like this brings up many many emotions uh, within them. I know many of my friends are have all sorts of emotions in them right now. One, uh, a sense of probably thankfulness that this day has arrived, but also. Um, you know, it's there's just been so much pain and suffering along the way that we, we can never lose sight of. 
Right, and I think it was the, the historic and groundbreaking work of the Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission that did so much to reveal the experience of, of the residential schools, and you did important work there. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, like that process and, and what we found out and what more needs to be done? Yeah, I mean, we, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in this country because Canada is a nation that has a very clear and uh, uh, sort of uh, just very present long-standing history of mass human rights violations amounting to genocide. And that's where we have to start this conversation. That's what we have to recognize. That's the fact that we've had a truth commission is reflective of just how horrific this history is that's still very much within our midst today. So the commission was tasked with going out and collecting as many statements from survivors as possible, documenting that oral history, assembling uh, as complete a historical record as possible from church and government archives, all in the service of producing reports, all in the service of educating the Canadian public, more broadly, all in the service of ensuring that we never forget as a country exactly what happened. Right, yeah, it's just critical, and the work that was done was amazing, and the, the the documents that were produced were historic and important, and the testimony that we heard at that commission, and you, as you mentioned, the oral history, what, was critical to understanding what happened here. Did, did any of that kind of surprise you when you heard some of this th- these stories, th- this oral testimony about the, the scale of what happened at the residential schools? Like, was it bigger than you thought? Absolutely, and I think um, even my my own understanding of of how big this all was, I've heard reflected even in the commissioners' voices as well. I mean, we all went into this with a fair bit of knowing. Uh, you know, the commissioners, especially uh, some were survivors themselves. You know, Murray Sinclair has done multiple inquiries previous to this, so we went in with a lot of knowing. Murray Sinclair has recently spoken about how he was shocked, even about the amount of testimony that we collected surrounding deaths and student yeah. deaths in these schools. Marie Wilson, at the very, very final event in uh, Calgary, where we were still collecting, or pardon me, in Edmonton at the Alberta National event, we were still collecting testimony at that point. She says, I've heard something from this from this event that I've never heard before. And that is an absolute certainty. We, if we continue to this day, we would still continue to uncover new truths, uh, new ways that children were, were just so terribly treated in, in those residential schools. What what do you hope is achieved with a national day for truth and reconciliation like we have today? The work that you did and your fellow commissioners did at the commission was just was so crucially important. As we go forward here now, what what is a, a day like today? What do you hope it can further achieve? There's two very important sort of principles, I think, in a day like this. And one of those principles is that we come together as a nation. Uh, as a as a broad family, really, if you will, and we say, we will never forget. Mm-hmm. Then we take that never forgetting and we turn that into action, and we say, never again will this occur. Mm-hmm. When we do that, though, we challenge ourselves. We actually force ourselves to see the continuation of those patterns of the past in the present. And collectively, what we have to do is, is come together and really stop the terrible inequalities and the injustice that is still present in our society. Stop the racism, stop the oppression, uh, stop the mistreatment of Indigenous kids to this day. Uh, That's what we need to do. And this day, 
this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation provides us with an opportunity to both reflect and then to redouble our efforts uh, to, again, say never again. Yeah, I think that was I think that was beautifully said, and, and I think the importance of looking forward is is crucial too. Because I love the name of the commission and the name of this day, Truth and Reconciliation, because it just seems that just true two crucial components of this. We need to understand the truth of what happened, and then we need a process of like like healing and reconciliation, right? Like, what does that word mean to you, reconciliation? I think reconciliation means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And and the commission itself did put forward a definition. It says reconciliation is all about respect. And it's actually about the establishment and maintenance of mutually respectful relationships. Um, That's a deceivingly uh, complex statement, actually, because when we think about reconciliation in that context, we have a lot of work to do reconciling our past. You know, what are the experiences of Indigenous peoples in the past and how are they different from the experiences of, you know, mainstream Canada? Uh, What are our differences today? We have to maintain and establish those respectful relationships today. And then we have to create a society wherein Indigenous futures, Indigenous dreams are present in society. For so long, Indigenous parents, Indigenous peoples, Indigenous nations have, have been told by this country that, yeah, your dreams don't really matter. Your dreams of a future society that is consistent with your laws and traditions and practices isn't something that we do in Canada. So we've got a lot of work to do in this regard. For a lot of residential school survivors, though, it's about healing. And it's about healing in the aftermath of genocide. Uh, And that we should never uh, underestimate just how uh, big of an ask and, and, and how much hard work that actually takes. Yeah, and in terms of the work that still needs to be done, I mean, your commission did so much to reveal what happened at the residential schools, but I know there there's still a process of revealing what happened. I mean, we've we've all been shocked by the reports of discoveries of unmarked graves of and the sites of former residential schools, and, and I know there's a continuing effort to uh, to obtain and secure and preserve documents related to what happened. Right? Like, is there still an effort to try and get documents from like churches and governments? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, even that was a that's been a massive part of the last decade of my life for certain is is trying yeah. to chase down records on residential schools. It's involved continuous and ongoing and highly adversarial litigation. It's been um, quite honestly very frustrating because all of this was preventable if we saw more goodwill from the parties. And certainly, the governments and the churches need to step up, need to produce those records. They have an ongoing legal obligation to do so and there's a moral and collective interest in producing those records because if we're serious about truth then we need to actually have the truth yeah i certainly agree with you rye thank you for coming on today i really appreciate your time on this important day and thank you for doing it thanks for having me on you bet thanks a lot rye moran there from the university of victoria Mariah is a member of the Red River Métis. He is a founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. He did a lot of the important archival work with Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As we continue our discussion on Canada's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, my guest is Alice Ross, a liberal MLA for Skeena. He is the former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. He's also running for the B.C. Liberal leadership. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Alice, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Alice, and I really appreciate you coming on today on this important day and on Canada's very first National Day for 
truth and reconciliation. I wonder what's going through through your heart and mind today and what it potentially uh, means for you today. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it just takes me back to the day when I discovered everything that happened to Aboriginals in Canada. And I discovered all this uh, back in 2004. And then in 2016, uh, I actually put together a pamphlet to talk about the meaning of reconciliation. And same as I feel today, it's just all those emotions come back. Those emotions of uh, sadness and anger. and But most of all, uh, positivity in terms of you know, how far we've come in the last 10 years. So it's, it's a wide range of emotions, I feel, in days like this. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, the report that you produced on the meaning of reconciliation with the Haida Nation, and you tweeted that this morning on your Twitter, and I have just retweeted it for the listeners here. And I encourage everyone to take a look at that because it's a it's a real kind of a, like as you described it, kind of a quick read that you put together on the history of the Heisland Nation and what happened to, to Indigenous people. And it's so important for, for everyone to understand this. And uh, I congratulate you for putting that out. I thought it, I thought it was excellent because it talked about the residential schools, and we've talked about that before. But it also talked about things like you know outlawing the potlatch or or pointing out that indigenous people for so long weren't, weren't even able to vote. You know, stuff that people might not know or understand. What are your thoughts? Oh yeah, oh, without a doubt. In fact, back in those days, uh, we were considered beasts in the field. And yeah, yeah. but you know, more importantly, what why I did that? was because I wanted Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals to understand it, to acknowledge what had happened. But really, my main, my main focus has always been build a future. In fact, the, the forward in that pamphlet says to Aboriginals, look, you've got to understand this, and you've got to go pursue your future, because we don't want our ancestors to have suffered for nothing. And the future is out there waiting for you if you want to go out and you want to work for it. It's there for you. That, that's really why I did it. Yeah, I mean, I love the two parts of this, truth and reconciliation. So I think it, the importance for Canadians to learn the truth about what happened to Indigenous people, and then I guess a path forward to healing and reconciliation, which I know is really important to you. Let me just ask you about the first part. Like, why is it? Why do you feel it's important for people to understand the truth of what happened to Indigenous people? Because we're living through the aftermath of it right now. Right, well, when yeah. you talk about uh, uh, the, the social issues that Aboriginals are facing all across Canada, whether we're talking about poverty or the violence of poverty, uh, addictions, uh, imprisonment, children in care, suicide, that all came from a, a culmination of everything that happened in the past. And, you know, what, the progress we made uh, in the last 15 years uh, here in BC alone is actually a big part of, of why I stand for uh, economic development, resource development, because in the, the day, I, I really want people to actually have the ability to address our own issues on our own terms. And that's that's the saying that came from my band, the ability to address our own issues on our own terms. And for that, you know, BC and Canada have actually gotten rid of the exclusion mandate they had in the last hundred years. And slowly, I'm starting to see individuals in terms of Aboriginals actually building up their own lives. And that's yeah. that's the most gratifying part of what I see today. Yeah, I know you're a really optimistic guy on this. And speaking to Ellis Ross, former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation, so so when we talk about the reconciliation component of this, you know, you've often talked about the importance of economic development, right? Like for indigenous nations to have control of, of their own land and their own resources and to make decisions, and this is part of the path forward. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, that that uh, concept actually came from the courts of BC and Canada. 
Yeah. And what right. we did in Kitimat is that we just took that to the next level. And it didn't have to be uh, control of the land per se. Mm-hmm. It had to be inclusion and the recognition of Aboriginal rights and title. Uh, but I, I've always said, you know, the Aboriginal rights and title case law that's been recognized by Canada ever since 1982 in the Constitution has no meaning unless all sides of this equation actually work to actually make life better for everybody. Yeah. And that's that's what we did in Kitimat. And we, we acknowledged rights and title, and we actually got involved with the LG project and the forestry issues. But you come to Kitimat and Terrace, everybody, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginals, are benefiting from it. So if we, if we can actually look at it in those terms, I mean, I think that's real true reconciliation when everybody can benefit from uplifting First Nations and Aboriginal rights and title. Yeah, we just have one minute left here, Ellis. And in order to achieve that, I mean, what do you think are the most important priorities right now to make things better? Well, I really like the idea that uh, Canadians, for the first time in my history at least, want to learn more. Yeah. And that's how we break this down. I mean, it, I know there's a lot of talk out there right now about racism incidents. And the only way you, you battle uh, racism, which is actually based on fear and ignorance, is education. There's a lot of different things that contributed to the, actually what we see today as BC, and whether we're talking about Indo-Canadians, uh, Asians in general, Aboriginals, Irish people, there's a lot of people that contributed. So understanding our history, you know, even the ugly parts, you know, that's, that's key to combating racism and acknowledge that, hey, we've got a long way to go, yeah. but you know what, we won't get there without educating ourselves in our past. No, I certainly agree with you. Ellis, thank you for being here with me today on Canada's First National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I'm very grateful to you for, for you for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you very much, and you guys have a great day. Well, let's talk about the COVID-19 fourth wave, the Delta variant, uh, particularly tough on the homeless. Uh, this was Dr. Bonnie Henry this week. She pointed out that this is a problem not only in Vancouver, Victoria, also smaller cities too, though, like Kelowna, Kamloops, Duncan. And Nanaimo, one of the toughest challenges here is finding places where people can isolate uh, if they are infected and they are homeless. Have a listen to this here. Now, this is uh, Dr. Henry on on that point. It is something that we're seeing in um, people who are underhoused and homeless in a number of communities around the province, uh, both Kelowna, Kamloops, uh, Victoria, and Duncan, Nanaimo. These are challenging issues. And uh, Vancouver Coastal is working with all of the uh, service providers in the downtown east side. We're making sure that um, people have safe places to stay, to shelter if they're positive for COVID. That has been a challenge in a way that has not been um, in the last year because many of the places where people were being uh, supported to isolate uh, are now back in commercial operations, whether they're motels or hotels, etc. Okay, as Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking this week. Let's check in with Nadia Chumi now, spokesperson for the Union Gospel Mission, which does some of the great work in this community in the downtown east side. Nadia, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks for having me. What are you seeing sort of at uh, the street level right now in terms of COVID? Because I remember in the early stages of the pandemic, it, it seemed like uh, homeless people were kind of escaping the worst of this. But are we seeing more of it, more cases now? Uh, so compared to this time last year, UGM is dealing with fewer cases, for example, like what we would have seen in the community or, or coming even or presenting even at the shelter. In general, um, I'd say that our organization is in a better place just because we've gotten the experience now of being in this pandemic for the last 18 months. 
I think, though, with every wave um, comes its own set of challenges. And definitely, as Dr. Bonnie Henry alluded to, the challenge with this latest wave, the fourth wave, is that Delta variant uh, that is causing the rise in cases. In recent weeks, we have had a positive case, for example, at our shelter. Uh, But again, because we have that experience in terms of you know, when someone presents with symptoms, we do know, you know, that we need to isolate them. We do have an area for isolation. Thankfully, that person was isolated from the rest of the folks who were staying at the shelter that night. And it turns out they, they were tested positive and we were able to connect them with uh, uh, with Vancouver Coastal Health so that they could get the services that they need. Right. What is the, uh, what's the vaccination rate among homeless people in Vancouver or do, or do we even know? Is there an estimate? The information that we're hearing from uh, Vancouver Coastal Health is that the vaccination rate is good. I was reading um, in the TAI this morning, I think, that the vaccination rate in this in, in the, the part of town where the downtown east side is was about 78%. But what we're hearing from Vancouver Coastal Health is that the vaccination rate uh, is good. And we have, uh, you know, been seeing folks go out to the um, to the vaccination clinics, they have been held regularly. Uh, we, from what we understand, there has been a good response. Yeah, that's good to hear. What What happens if people are, are feeling sick? If they if they're complaining of any symptoms, like what do you guys encourage them to do? Go get tested right away. Yeah, definitely go get tested. But one thing that we don't do or don't want to do is to turn people away. So again, that's why we have that isolation area set up within our shelter. That if someone does present. We're still able to give them a place to sleep in the night. It's, it's not an ideal area. They have to, you know, sleep away from everybody else. But at the very least, we're then, again, right immediately able to connect with Vancouver Coastal Health. They're able to get tested and, and then get the help that they need. So it kind of depends on the time of day where when they present. All right. Speaking to Nadia Chumi from the Union Gospel Mission, let's have another listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry here. And here she is talking about what officials are doing for people who are homeless. We're increasing. There's uh, on-the-street vaccination and testing for people. Uh, We're supporting staff in uh, BC housing and in shelters uh, to make sure that we can support people across the downtown east side and uh, in the communities, in in other communities where this is an issue. Okay, Nadia, do you feel there's enough supports out there right now, given the situation we're facing? You know, again, this wave is, is bringing with it its own unique set of challenges. Uh, one thing that we are seeing, um, you know, in the downtown east side is, is you know, not everything has returned to normal. Uh, so we know that there is a need for more isolation spaces and continue to encourage, uh, you know, the, the health authority to, to find those spaces. Although we know that they are working along with BC Housing, along with other organizations, to make it possible but we recognize that that there are challenges yeah i mean like if you've got someone who's homeless and you know they they test positive for covid you want to find an isolation space like what is what is the challenge there like i heard dr bonnie henry say in that earlier clip that some facilities that may have been available earlier are no longer available right we've only got about a minute left here yeah that's right that is the key thing um you know we've as the, as the pandemic has, has dragged on now, you know, during the last maybe eight months or maybe 10 months ago, yes, there were spaces that were open because nobody was able to use them at the hotel or wherever, right. but that's yeah. changed. Yeah. 
again, the challenges are always going to evolve. If we head into another wave, God only knows what we'll face then. Nadia, thank you for the great work the Union Gospel Mission does. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much.